Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zanashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Howdy, hey, howdy. Good to see y'all. Palmer. I wanted to ask Martin about the fish guts. How did they ever figure out to add Isinglass to beer? Haven't you ever wondered that? Well, you know, a lot of the the gut-related things, Mm -hmm. um, like cheese and uh, with rennet and... uh, uh, There's another one, yeah. And, uh, you know, all these things, it's because it was a handy storage vessel. So a lot of times the, the bladders uh, in animals are waterproof. Uh, and so, uh, for example, sealing up uh, jars of preserves and things like that, they will take a pig's bladder and they'll stretch it out. And then they will stretch that over the top of the preserve tie it off with some twine and then when it dries it, it dries to this nice tight uh seal over the over the jar so they didn't have like uh uh you know wrap. mason jars and stuff and saran wrap yeah they they had to cover the the little pot with something and they would use uh bladders and so I could imagine somebody, for example, they talk about, oh, using it as a, you know, a, a bladder to hold um, or a stomach to hold a, uh, you know, milk and then seeing how it curdled, uh, you know, to make cheese. That's one way. Perhaps, you know, the same thing happened with Isinglass, you know, I think. Pour beer been, into a fish. and Right. Well, if I had beer clarified. And, I, and I didn't have any containers, I'd be just like, hey, kill that big fish over there. You know, let's take its uh, swim bladder out. Let's pour it in there. You know, I'd want to be taking some beer with me. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to travel very far. Back then, you know, traveling to like the next city, uh, you know, that took some, some, yeah, some walking. Yeah, took all day. Yeah. It took yeah. a long time or it may, may have taken weeks. And what am I going to do? Not drink for a week? Uh, it's not going to happen. So I'd be, I'd be slaughtering every animal I could. And filling up their guts with beer and then uh, putting that into it, you know, tying it off somewhere. And that's that's how I would survive to the next uh, to the next city. Because I'm not drinking the water back then. You know, yeah. that water is uh, nasty stuff. Uh, you know, you know who was probably the first person to do this would be to drink the water yes. would be a relative of uh no no just like slaughter an animal and start oh, pull out the bladder and fill it yeah okay that would be our good friend john blickman it would have you're been right one of his one of his uh ancestors because you know he, i imagine he comes from a very long line of creative uh brewing related people yes yes what could i use this bladder for right well, let me kill something and yeah, you know, yeah. see what I can use all the, the pieces parts for. And uh, so he was innovating your fish guts or innovating your, your beer storage with fish guts back, back then. Now today he's innovating your brew day. He is uh, creating, uh, you know, great brewing equipment that right. makes your brew day more fun, more successful. Uh, and, you know, that includes if you're a pro brewer too. Uh, Blickman Engineering is producing, uh, you know, uh, professional brew gear. And uh, if you're looking at opening a brewery, or if you open a brewery and you're using a 15 gallon pot and brewing 12 times a day trying to supply your customers, well, I got news for you. Maybe you want to check out, uh, you know, a, a Blickman Engineering, uh, you know, uh, brewery, and yeah, uh, you could pro brewery line. Yeah, you can you can get up to a a larger larger size uh, brewery and make your brew day just that much easier. Same amount of labor brewing ten gallons as it is a thousand gallons. 
there is there is pretty much no no difference between the two except uh, at the end you have 999 gallons more beer to serve. So right. check that out uh, if you get a chance. Uh, send an email feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com and tell him how much you appreciate that he is paying for the show so you do not have to. Uh, I think that's very kind of him to have done for the last 15 plus years. And so uh, the least you owe him is an email saying thank you. Uh, today, we were going to uh, kind of tackle some of your brewing questions that you've sent us. You can send us questions uh in uh, th- by sending them to uh, Brew Strong at thebrewingnetwork.com, and uh, right. we'll get those. And eventually, over time, sometimes it takes me twelve years, but uh, I make sure that we get to all the questions. It just takes a little time sometimes, uh, but the, the ones we have today are much much more recent, um, and so recent that uh, some of us from our our last show about uh, uh, Porter, the history of Porter. Uh, Martin Cornell, a really great guy, was fascinating. I could just sit there and listen. Back. Yeah, yeah. Sit there and listen to him talk for hours. Uh, we we got to have him back, like you're saying. Uh, Peter was asking with high gravity beers of the times, is there a known degrees of modification and conversion? And with less modification, would more malt contribute to more flavor? I'm not sure I understand that question 100, but um, yeah, the they they didn't have highly modified malt. Um, right. Part of the problem was um, the the way that they were kilning the malt um, uh, also um, reduced some of the ability uh, of, of the, the enzyme potential. Yeah, and um, uh, does less. Mo- I guess the question would be: Does less mo- modified malt contribute more malt flavor? Not necessarily. Um, when you when we talk about modification, we're t- we're talking about how much extract, soluble extract, comes out of the barley to become beer. To go, it goes into the wort to become beer. So if you have less um, less modified malt. It has lower extract. You end up using more malt to get the same amount of fermentables. You end up leaving that unmodified portion in the mash tun. The, so the starch that hasn't been modified. Yeah, starch has been modified. Protein solubilized. Solubilized. All of that is insoluble and stays in the mash tun, so it doesn't go into the wort. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think you can you can draw a quick correlation to less modified, more multi flavor. I don't think there's a relationship there. Um, I, I would think that there's a relationship possibly between. I agree with you 100 percent on that. Uh, that there's possibly a correlation between you know when they were doing higher kilning of malt back right. then had less control over it. Maybe you're developing some more flavors. Uh, yeah, different flavors, more flavors, melanoidins. Yes. And because, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, European brewing practice, decoction brewing, that was specifically to, to um, fix that less modified problem. Mm-hmm. And so the longer boil times, the decoctions, all of that resulted in a maltier flavor with the malts because they were boiling longer. They were getting more melan- melanoidin formation. So mm-hmm. um, that is where there is a correlation or at least a, a, a result of some maltier flavors from using a less modified malt. But it's due to the process that was used for you know, extraction for the mash and for boiling rather than saying, uh, you know, the uh, malt itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a uh, very interesting question, but I, I think we'd have to really dig into the details to give an accurate answer. Well, the cool thing about listening live on Facebook is you can uh, ask your questions uh, there in the chat, uh, in the in the comments section, and uh, the the lovely uh, Miss Bevo is there, and she will pluck those questions and uh, 
uh, provide those to us so you can ask uh, ask live. Uh, Brendan yeah. was listening live, uh, and uh, he was asking, uh, did the brewers actually have, referring back to our previous show about porters, did the brewers actually have problems with brewing, specifically too high of a mash pH, and how did they find that roasted barley reduced mash pH and made a better beer with their particular water? I mean, what were people doing with water back then in the uh, you know 18th century? Uh, were they um, yeah. and you know the invention of the the black pad would be uh, you know uh, 19th century? Uh, yeah, that that's that's a very interesting topic. Um, when I was researching the water book. Uh, that was one question I was wondering. Because um, they when- would they would cite a a brewery because there was of the good water adequate supply. water, right? Yeah. They would, you know, uh, you know, Burton on Trent, you know, water, exactly. you know, the wells there, um, you yeah. know, near the 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 uh, Thames. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was uh, a lot of uh, yeah. you know. Burnization of water was invented around 1850 or before 1825, somewhere in there in that period of time, way before pH, way before, um, you know, a lot of the, the chemistry that we know today that we take for granted, they had chemistry, they had, and you can go back to, um, some of the historic brewing texts you can find on Google Google Docs and stuff, um, where they're talking about measuring, you know, how much um, calcium and carbonate, and they were using different terms. And I wanted to tell you that term, but I've forgotten. <laughs> but I mean, you know, they they had ways of measuring these things, um, and they knew that um, these uh, these chemistries made better beer they may they may have not known why you know from say a ph point of view and so on but they know that they knew it was better well and so when was when was ph uh, uh 19 discovered 1921 wow yeah so uh you know quite quite recent 100 years yeah, yeah. we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of ph yeah, they 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 understood acidity and and base, you know, they and acid base chemistry, but they, they didn't, didn't have, have a have measurement a, for it. Right, they didn't have a measurement system or an instrument for it. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Uh, let's see here. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll have uh, more of your questions right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're doing a live Q&A session here. Me and my uh, dear buddy, John Palmer, uh, from the uh, from the hop fields where he's at to the uh, the brewing office at uh, heretic um and one thing i like about this shot behind me as i look at everybody else with all their fancy backgrounds the, the, <laughs> the thing i like about this is i've got the fan in the tap room is turning and right. that so no matter you know you can see if i've died or i'm just sitting here thinking <laughs> but you can see that the, it's not frozen video uh, right it's still live you see 
if the fan stops turning, then then it's probably. Uh, or if you stop moving and the fan's still going, it's like ah, right. he is I'm pretending. Dead. I'm yes. pretending uh, <laughs> that the video is frozen, uh, so I don't have to answer the question. Uh, let's see. Uh, Camillo uh, was also is listening live as well. And he says, uh, I have a question. What type of yeast did uh, people use in the beginning to make porter? And uh, did they measure the, the, the yeast that they were using? Did they uh, or, you know, back in the 1700s, I guess, when it was London Brown mm-hmm. uh, or, or was it? Oh, no, I think he said in the uh, 17th century. So in the, the yeah, 1600s, 1600s yeah. 1650, let's say, and the 1600s, if it was Lennon Brown, they, they didn't even really know about yeast then, did they? Right. Um, you know, there was a really fascinating uh, talk by uh, one of the brewers at Guinness uh, last week with the World Brewing Congress virtual conference. Um and I'm trying to remember when the microscope was invented. And I think that was like mid 1700s, mm-hmm. 1750-ish. Um, so that's when they started looking at yeast under the microscope. They didn't recognize it as a living organism that, you know, caused fermentation. I thought um, it was just so, a by- byproduct, a waste product. Yeah. And so is Pasteur. Well, Pasteur, among a few others, that defined this is what's going on mm-hmm. um, in fermentation. Um, gosh, how did that go? So anyway, back to the question: uh, How do you know the 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 yeast? What yeast did they use? Um, the brewing yeast. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that the the brewer from Guinness told us was that everybody borrowed. Yeast, yeast from, from everyone everywhere else. Right. right. So there was there was constant yeast sharing in a in a location. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you still see that today. Yeah, yeah. They didn't know how to store it. So um, one of the one of the anecdotes or history of Guinness the Guinness Brewery was that um, he shut the brewery down for about two weeks to install a new um, steam engine, and in that time their own yeast culture died or whatever they immediately went out and around the area and got some more. And so what they had been using for Guinness stout for, you know, a period of 20 years, 25 years ended then. And then I think I forget what year that was that we were talking about 1760, perhaps um, they started up with new local cultures from the area and another aspect of that talk was that Irish yeast is its own group, um, very much, uh, very fairly different through, from through the selective British pressure. Yeah, yeah, selective pressure and also origin. Um, the the genomes are are different enough that they they gave it its own group versus British yeasts. And they think that the Irish yeasts are actually a hybrid of the British yeasts and American yeasts, surprisingly enough. So, yeah, great, really interesting talk. Um, uh, I, I think the whole, you know, history of brewing is quite fascinating. And, oh, yeah. and even, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, what's going on today and a lot of the new discoveries and, and techniques and things, it's like, well, you know, if you didn't have – the ability to measure pH until, you know, a hundred years ago. I mean, you know, that we're yeah. just figuring out pH related things here today. <laughs> yeah. It's not that surprising because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it wasn't like, uh, you had the little portable meter a hundred years ago. I'm sure it was, right. it was quite a dissolved oxygen today. and Brett and yeah. So, right. um, all also the, the whole, the whole, uh, origin of porter as far as a, a vat aged beer stale beer meaning aged um and the 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 brett character that would eventually come out in that mm-hmm. um interesting to under to speculate on you know what that porter may have tasted like what kind of brett that was um and you know how in given the the 
very large size of these tons that they were using, you know, was it a pretty subtle Brett character? Um, yeah. Fascinating to spe- right. speculate. Yeah. Uh, Matt Clay wrote in uh, again, you can send your questions into uh, Bruce strong at the brewing network.com. And uh, just like uh, Matt, uh, you will get your question asked. Um Hello, with the rise of electric brewing systems, I've been looking at the uh, Anvil Foundry. I'm especially intrigued as I have an open 220-volt outlet in my kitchen from the electric stove that are replaced with a gas unit. I have a couple of questions. If I change uh, the plug on the foundry or any 220-volt compatible uh, brew system, for that matter, to the NEMA 6-15 or 6-20. Uh, and what that is, is the, the, the number, the first number is kind of like the, you know, style. And the, the second number is the amperage uh, that it's able to, you know, so 6-15 is 15 amps and the 20 is a 20 amp plug. A 30 would be a 30 amp plug. And then they will have different kinds of configurations on them. They are all not just interchangeable to the outlet. You got to get the outlet and the plug to match. Um, let's see here. Uh, should, should I be able to utilize the 220 volt outlet in the kitchen with the proper GFCI and, uh, or plug adapters? If in the summer I chose to brew outside, I only have 110 volt receptacle available. Got to use 110, uh, to 220 step up transformer to achieve 220 in this situation. Alternate, alternatively, if 110 volt is my only option and I switch the brewing uh, unit back to 110 mode, are there adapters assuming proper GFCI protection that would allow conversion of the 615 or 620 plug now on the brewing unit for use on a uh, 515 receptacle? Um, the the plug can be changed out. I mean, you can yeah. constantly swap out plugs for whatever plug you need it's the extra uh, line that you need for 220 versus 110 one of the things i think a lot of times people don't realize is that it's not that difficult for somebody to run uh you know 220 to a location somewhere in your house Um, because if you have 210 volt uh uh you know uh, uh circuits uh you know on separate uh, parts of the panel, you can pull, uh, you know, that voltage uh, to another location. It's generally not too expensive and really does, you know, when it comes to heating, uh, you know, being able to run at the higher voltage, you do get more effective heating than uh, uh, on the 110. That really Um, is one of the real perks of the Anvil Foundry all-in-one is that it switching from 220 to 110 is just a switch on the side of the unit. I mean, it's covered, but you just, you take the cover off, Mm -hmm. flip that, and then you can plug it into the appropriate power. I use, you know, 220 um, when I can, but I also have one of the small ones myself, which allows, you know, a good vigorous boil on 110 and which is very convenient. Well, and one thing I would suggest, Matt, checking out is um, uh, RV uh, supply places um, for uh, our British folks, uh, you know, the uh, the travel trailers or what do they call them? The camper campers. Caravans. Caravans. Yeah. yeah, Camper caravans. Um, uh, They will have um, adapters from... uh, 220 down to 110 and they're in short little, you know, whips that are maybe like six inches or a foot long. They're not too expensive. And so you would keep your 220 plug on one side. And then you're, when you are hooking up the anvil for um, 110, you could plug in with the other one. So that might be a way to go. Yeah. There's a, there's a anvil foundry user group on Facebook where they, discuss these sorts of issues quite a bit. So you maybe find some real good recommendations there Mm -hmm. uh, for specific adapters and so on that allow you to go back and forth easily. Let's see here. Troy is uh, writes in with positive thoughts. Mr. Zanishev, 
I only stumbled upon Brew Strong as I was perusing the homebrewing Reddit page, and someone wrote something along the lines of, I'm looking for a brewing podcast podcast that doesn't have crude humor. I like the Brew Strong podcast, but there are way too many dick jokes. Ah. That's feedback there, John. They, they, yeah, yeah, I'm guilty as charged, yeah. Uh, <laughs> of course, that piqued my interest. And to figure out who this Jamal guy was and how good were his <laughs> beer-related dick jokes. Been listening for the last three or four months. Let me say I am not disappointed. Hope whatever medical stuff you're going through is going well. Uh, sending positive thoughts your way. Looking forward to having you back on the podcast, uh, Troy. Yes, yes. Troy, I am the master of the brewing-related dick joke. I'm just saying. I don't think uh, there's there's many out there better than me. Uh, very very proud of <laughs> very proud of uh, very proud of that. Um, no, I did uh, I did uh, uh, the uh, Beersmith podcast with uh, Brad. Oh, Brad's a yeah. very uh, straight-laced uh, guy, you know, and he. he I mean, I'm sure he's told a oh, joke yeah. or two before right. in his time, you know, oh, yes. he's a fun guy, but he's, you know, determined to, you know, make sure his podcast is very clean and uh, very uh, yes. straightforward. And he says, well, I just want to, you know, remind you. And I said, well, <laughs> you don't have anything to worry about with me because I'm a very quiet, uh, straight, plain guy. I don't, you know, I'm not out making dick jokes uh, all the time. It's the Brewing Network. It is just the Brewing Network. I, yeah, when I get with close friends and we're we're in private, maybe, yeah. but normally I'm not making dick jokes. So it is just the Brewing <laughs> Network, and you all get to experience the joy of yep. hearing us uh, cut loose and and have some fun. Uh, you know where I like to cut loose and have some fun is up at Brew Chatter. Uh, up in Reno, they have a beautiful uh, homebrew shop, uh, all sorts of great ingredients, lots of fresh ingredients, uh, lots of knowledge, lots of cool equipment, every little last thing you're looking for. Plus, they have a great bar in there. And they ah. bring in uh, a number of great commercial beers. Uh, they'll, have some, they'll even have some heretic on every once in a while. And uh, I'll stop in there and... Uh, I'll just sit down at the bar and start drinking while uh, while they're helping customers, and then uh, I get to chat with customers and, and drink. It's just pretty much wonderful. One question: I mean, given the fact that this is Reno yes. or, or close by, yes, do they have other uh, <laughs> entertainment at the uh, at the bar there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I. I think uh, I get where you are alluding to, sir. But uh, slot that machines, be, yes, that would be that would be highly inappropriate. There are no slot machines. There are okay, no, uh, very there's good. no other uh, ancillary entertainment. I would oh, okay. think you know lots of homebrewing knowledge, lots of great beer, uh, lots of great people uh, stopping in and saying hi. I think that alone is great reason enough to uh, visit to Brew Chatter. Uh, indeed, in, indeed. In, in Sparks, Nevada, right next to Reno. Or uh, uh, if you're on the web, check them out, brewchatter.com. Send them a, send them a nice uh, email and uh, say hi for us. Thank them for uh, you know, chipping in some, some bucks to uh, keep this show going. We do appreciate it. There you go. All right. Uh, another short break. And when we come back, more of your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're uh, taking your questions live, and we are uh, going through your uh, questions uh, that came in via email, uh, which you can send to uh, brewstrong at, at, at thebrewingnetwork.com. And we do get those, and we do read them. Sometimes it takes a little while to get to them, but eh, we do them. Let's see. Um, Sean wrote uh, about, he's curious about diluting beer and there being an issue with calcium. He says, hi, I'm planning on diluting a beer with water 
and seemed to remember some issue regarding calcium that I need to be aware of. But what was it? Does the water need more or less calcium than the beer has? Right, right. Um, so when you're diluting beer with water, um, you're diluting that cal the calcium potential. Um, in the case of the final beer, it's not uh, a big deal. Depends um, how much you're diluting it. Yeah. You know, 50%. Well, maybe you want to make sure there's some mineral component to your water. Right. Uh, right. 10%, you know, you could use distilled, not, not as yeah. much as you. The thing about calcium, it doesn't have a flavor, but it has some aspect of mouthfeel. And with a lack of calcium, with high dilution, for example, you could get a watery tasting beer. Um, I think a bigger issue, though, when it comes to diluting uh, finished beer is the oxygen level in that water. Mm. And any oxygen that you add, you know, post-fermentation is going to contribute to the staling. Mm -hmm. So um, even if you were to boil the water vigorously for half an hour before you use that to uh, add it, you know, add to the beer you you would only get down to like uh one to two parts per million of oxygen and no lower and that's still enough to contribute to staling that's yeah, huge um uh, bubble co2 through it yeah yeah that helps that yeah, helps that's that's how helps we strip scrub, it out that's how we scrub oxygen from our from our water that we use for any sort of dilution here uh there you go. and that seems to help so, yeah, uh, I would imagine bubbling CO2 through uh, water would uh, also, uh, it might uh, do something to the calcium as well. They have an effect on the, the calcium level? Um, well, if, if it depend, would depend on the specific chemistry, but if the pH went up high to 12, Mm -hmm. then you would encourage the precipitation of calcium carbonate. Mm -hmm. um, but actually when you're bubbling CO2 through the, the water, yeah. yeah, the pH will drop. And so it'll become slightly more acidic by about half a pH unit. So that shouldn't be an issue. Okay. The, uh, my, my dear friend, Dan Magnus uh, from uh, Brewhouse 19 out in Sweden. Ah. Uh, Carl Sham, Sweden. Yeah. Uh, fantastic brewer out there. He says, dear friends, love to watch your show. Getting late here in Sweden by now. He says, tomorrow we're brewing a hazy triple IPA. Wow. As we heard uh, Martin tell about winter warmers, he says, do you want to share your fall winter favorite beer style? Ah, mine's Oktoberfest. Ooh, that's true. Uh, see, I thought I had an answer, and then you just come up with Oktoberfest. <laughs> Mic drop. I'm like, um, I've been enjoying some Iyengar uh, Oktoberfest. Uh, yeah. Actually. For our little Oktoberfest here, I bought uh, Iyengar Oktoberfest, Iyengar uh, Doppelbach, the celebrator, uh, Iyengar Maybach, and mm. Iyengar Dunkel. And uh, we bring in fresh. Oh, nothing like it. I just, yeah. uh, I can't tell you how much I love uh uh, those beers. So yeah, an Oktoberfest is a good, that's a good call. That's a good call. Um, I was going to say, well, you know, maybe uh, for me, fall, winter, uh, I'd have to go with like evil three. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Ah, now there's, <laughs> there's a, there's an easy drinker. That's, yeah, that's a favorites. delicious beer. Yeah. And I can only get that once a year. So uh, that's one of my favorites. Um, yeah. As far as, you know, style wise, I don't know. I think uh, I've never been that keen myself on winter warmers mm -hmm. because with, the, oh gosh, what is it about them? To me, they're just, they're, they kind of go against my expectations. I mean, of a higher alcohol, but thinner. Uh, I don't know. It's, but, but they're not like a double IPA where higher alcohol, the lower body um, and more hot bitterness. These are, Less hoppy, a little bit sweeter. I don't know. I, I, if if I if I was going to brew a winter warmer, I think it would end up being more like a strong American brown ale. Mm. 
Um, and again, I'm I'm kind of going back to the Oktoberfest kind of thing because the fall, a little cooler temperatures, uh, I'm looking for that maltier, heavier beer, um, you know, not necessarily sweeter, um, but uh, just a little bigger and maltier. There you go. Well, Don Magnus, uh, I think uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully trying your your triple hazy IPA sometime. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if all, all you folks are, have it uh, accessible in Sweden, you should uh, make sure to try it. Check out check out those the beers at Carl Sham uh, at uh, Brewhouse Nineteen. Brewhouse Nineteen. <laughs> how's that? How's that for my my Swedish? Pretty bad, I know. Pretty bad, I know. But uh, those guys, they, they still like me, I think. It's a great um, country. It is. Just wonderful people, wonderful place. All right. David was asking, head retention in Steins versus glass. He says, I've noticed that beer, when served in cups such as Steins, have less head retention than the same beer served in glass. What could cause this difference? Could the glazing process affect nucleation sites within the vessel? Could. It depends. You know, I think a rough surface would promote, you know, um, more uh, foaming, more foaming, more nucleation of bubbles. You would, you would lose more uh, carbonation potential right but away. You when think you, pour you would the beer. build so much head that you would get, you know, maybe more head retention. I don't know. Well, but there's a difference between head formation and head retention. Retention, true. Uh, so I wouldn't think it would affect. Uh, head retention. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe the diameter of the vessel, if, if your stein tends to be a larger diameter than uh, the glasses you're using, uh, that could uh, affect uh, head retention, I would think, just because of surface tension, you know, the changes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so maybe maybe that's, that's a possibility. Yeah. Um, I would think which one is, is smoother is... Uh, is uh, you know some of these uh, uh, glazing is the glazing uh, essentially uh, melted essentially glass? glass? Yeah, yeah. So I would think that that would not be an issue either. I would think yeah. that uh, you know either diameter or you know the maybe it's just um, that you're you're assuming that this happens because you've seen it a couple of times and you really haven't done a, a detailed study of uh, of the glass i can't think of a chemical reason off the top of my head or a met- metallurgical reason between glaze mm-hmm. and glass to cause a difference in head retention right and i you know one of the i mean, one of the other things i can think of is temperature uh, you know the thermal mass yeah. of something uh, like a like a, a stein uh, versus a, a glass. I could think of the diameter difference. I could think of uh, you know potentially a height difference. Depends on yeah. what kind of glass we're talking about and what kind of. But stein. in terms terms of the things that are known to affect head retention, cleanliness is number one. It's probably the greatest. Yes. I would agree. And so maybe there's a maybe there's a categorical difference or a typical difference in cleanliness between his stein and his glassware. I don't know, but usually cleanliness has a lot to do with head retention. Right. Are you, are you, are you questioning the, the cleanliness of this uh, man's uh, stein? I'm just suggesting that maybe, maybe his wife washes the glasses and he washes the steins. Mm. And somebody's doing a better job than the other, perhaps. Who can say? Right. Maybe he's only whipping out his stein on Oktoberfest. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he's, he's getting get his greasy sausage eating fingers in, in his stein. Yeah. And uh, yeah, sausage grease on the mustache. That's a big head retention killer there. Right. Right. There you go. That's uh, certainly a possibility as well. Let's see here. Um <laughs> Travis wrote in. Ah. Uh, he says, uh, a different Travis. Travis Scout uh, from Colorado Springs. He says, hello, I have a question about dumping yeast with a conical fermenter. I have a grandfather conical, and it has a pretty small yeast dump port. They recommend doing a dump every three to four days to avoid clogging. 
I personally believe a morning dump is better every day. You know, first thing in the morning when I wake up, a morning mm-hmm. dump, and that avoids my clogging. I am assuming there is not anything worth dumping until the croissant has fallen, uh, which I'm guessing should be done after five to six days. My main question is, other than wasting beer, can you dump too early or too much? Can I assume everything that is needed for fermentation to hassle the rest would stay in solution and what I don't need would have fallen to the bottom? Um, if you're just looking at dumping the yeast and not harvesting the yeast, uh, there will be some that will drop early, even while you're at high croissant, uh, because, um, you know, there are s- some dead cells that are always in there and, uh, there'll be some, uh, some troops, some, uh, uh, some break material that'll be at the bottom as well. Yep. So you could dump that early. Um, yes, every time you dump, uh, anything out of it, you are wasting some beer. Um, the longer you wait, and let everything kind of pack up tight at the bottom, you have less beer in there, but it won't go out through that small valve easily. You need the small valves, the small openings really only work when uh, whatever you're passing through it is is fairly loose and liquid. Um, When it's nice and condensed and holds very little beer, uh, doesn't go very easy. It's one of the reasons I'm just not a fan of uh, trying to dump uh, off a bottom port on a conical, unless you can get something that's got, even with an inch and a half or two inch port, unless um, you've got some hydrostatic pressure behind it, or you can, you know, uh, or pressurize the vessel. Sharp V, yeah. Um, it just won't, it won't push out. It, it, uh, it'll just bridge across there. Cause I've got, fermenters here they're 120 22 feet tall 20 22 and a half feet tall and even then uh, you know it's uh, if you pack up a good you let that yeast build up hard at the bottom it really still doesn't want to come out i mean it, it can it can be uh, a challenge sometimes and that's you know with uh two inch ports so you have to you know expecting it to work on a conical I think you got to go when it's loose um, if you want to get get that stuff out. Um, uh, what I always did with conicals was I just let it all form up at the bottom, and then I just racked out out of the top. <laughs> that was my solution. Yeah, I think I think if you want you want to do it, you know, if you're going to do yeast harvesting from the conical, then yeah, do do an early trub dump. You know, first day, second day. Mm-hmm. Um, while that's the majority of what's down there and then maybe let it go as you say three or four days before you Mm -hmm. try taking some yeast out Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and uh you know harvesting yeast uh can be relatively tricky because if you're harvesting early yeast only um, the early yeast are ones that do not attenuate as well and they flocculate earlier. And what you're going to find is you'll get beer that clears really well, uh, but it won't attenuate well. And it's going to be, you know, if you keep doing that, it's going to attenuate less and less and less. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the, the way you're going for. If you want, uh, if you start, you know, dumping all the rest of the yeast and then you wait for the very end, to get the most attenuative yeast, you're also going to get the stuff that doesn't flocculate very well. So you'll start getting a yeast that remains in suspension and causes a haze, um, you know, uh, and it's very hard for it to flocculate. It'll attenuate well, but, you know, won't, won't flocculate. Uh, and that can happen in, you know, just a generation or two, you know, a couple, a couple of times of doing it, uh, all of a sudden you've, you've kind of screwed up the yeast that you were trying to harvest. So it depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, sometimes it's just cool to mess around and uh, select different yeasts and, you know, just make a yeast start acting kind of weird, uh, doing different things. And you'll get different flavors uh, as well. So you just have to kind of be a little bit careful about uh what, what you're doing there, um, uh, harvest wise. Uh, let's see here. We got time for one more. Um, uh, KJ writes in, uh, I have been homebrewing around nine years. I search for specific topics in 
grew strong over the years. I just recently started a job, hour commute. So I'd go back to the first topic ever, make my way through the majority of the list. This has led me to uh, a, a few questions. Through experimentation, I found that adding things to fermenters post high croissant achieves a brighter, more fresh flavor. I'm somewhat of a f- uh, fanatic about s- sanitization. Uh, and I've done some pre-packaged things like canned fruit and candy syrup straight from the package with good results. I've also done a vodka tincture with things like spices, cocoa nibs, orange peel, and vanilla beans. I'm curious of other methods of adding uh, things to a fermenter in a sanitary way, more specifically dry items that uh, clump up and would require stirring like PB2 powder, uh, graham cracker crumbs, um, and he's interested in trying a powdered cream cheese. I'm not so sure powdered cream cheese is a good idea for beer. Uh, yeah. could be wrong, but uh, it could be, could be something nasty. Also, fresh fruit, although I'm considering Jamel's suggestion of fruit puree for wine. Uh, yeah, the Oregon fruit uh, purees. Um, and uh, there's other aseptic fruit purees that are pretty good. Uh, thank you for, uh, for the help and the education over the years. Thank you for any help you can give me now. So, John, what do you do if you're trying to add things to a fermenter? Yeah, um, I think adding them, well, there's the hot side and cold side. So, if you add them to the hot side, to like the, to, to say to the whirlpool step, if you will, after, after the end of the boil, where it's still hot, you can add some spices there. You don't want to boil them in general. But that's a good way to get good um, extraction of the essence into the wort. And you get a lot of, I find you get a lot of flavor from hot extraction. Whereas if you go cold side um, after high croissant uh, to preserve more of the aroma, um, cold side additions tend to have more of the spice or the, that character aroma. Um, than flavor. Flavor is usually diminished um, because of the longer contact time. It's kind of like the difference between uh, hot brew and cold brew coffee, mm-hmm. you know, um, or in, in other spices that I find. Right. I, you know, I'm of, you know, two minds of this. One is, yeah, you don't want to, you know, introduce any sort of uh, micro biological contamination into your, your beer um, and cause your beer to go sour or something like that. But, you know, if you are home brewing it uh, and you're going to keep it in a, let's say a keg cold yeah. in your fridge, then yeah, that's not, not such a big deal. Um, you know, the pace at which that would become an issue and you, know, you probably are going to consume the keg, you know, long before that, that happens you know you can store it for a good month with a pretty high bacterial load and still not see hardly anything happen um so on the one hand i would be you know don't worry about it just toss it in there when i did um uh you know some stuff uh, you know in the home brewing i would worry about it more but uh what i've kind of discovered is that a lot of times there isn't anything in some of these, some of these powders depends on how the powder is made, of course. But one of the things you can always do is, you know, heat it up in an oven. Uh, You know, that takes a little bit more heat, Um, mix it with a small amount of hot water or mix it with a little bit of hot water. And then you can heat that up. And uh, if you can get that up to 140 degrees uh, for half an hour, um, it'll be pasteurized. Um, versus, you know, powder in like an oven where you have to get it up to what, 350 degrees, 300 degrees. Yeah. Um, when it's wet, um, it takes uh, far less heat. So, uh, you know, you get up to 161 degrees Fahrenheit and it's pretty much instantaneously pasteurized at that point, uh, which is a fairly low temperature for, uh, you know, changing the aromatics and the brightness of something, the higher you temperature, you put something to the more it changes it and you get more of that cooked character. Yeah. Um, does extract more. So, uh, you know, if you're really concerned about it, I would look at, you know, possibly, uh, trying the, uh, 
mixing with water and then just warming it up uh, to, to a pasteurization temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's already mentioned using alcohol for tincture, things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, there, there are products out there that are already um, uh, done that way. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I stopped adding things to the boil, except uh, we're making a, a beer called Monster Cookie now that has actual chocolate chip cookies in it. And those we throw into the boil. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Chocolate yeah. seems to survive boiling pretty well. Yeah. yeah. It's, so, uh, all the chocolate chip cookie flavor does, too. It's pretty shocking nice. how well it goes through. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Scott asks, uh, hello, I'm hoping you answer a quick question I have about calculating my mash efficiency on the malt analysis sheet. Uh, two extract percentages are listed fine grind and fine grind dry. Do I use the, uh, as is fine grind or do I use the dry malt grind when I compare my percent of efficiency? Generally use the fine grind dry basis as the absolute. Um, and that, you know, and you, your calculate this, I discussed this in how to brew in the, what to expect when you're extracting chapter. I forget what chapter number it is. It's like 18 or something. Um, but that's your abs, that's your laboratory maximum. And then from there you say, um, you take that percentage um, it's usually around 81 or 82% total soluble extract. Multiply that against the 46 pound points per pound per gallon for sucrose. That gets you to 32 points per pound per gallon. That would be the absolute uh, maximum extraction you could expect from the malt. And then from there, you take 75% of that as your brewing efficiency and that would knock you down to say like 28 points per pound per gallon. And that's what you could typically expect for your, your brewing efficiency. Well, and one of the main uses for that number is um, really in, um, uh, you know, comparing malts. So yeah. it's there to provide a, 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 you know, a, consistent method for analyzing malt and when you want to look at one malt or another malt um it's uh somebody was offering me a different base malt here and they're like oh you're gonna save a ton of money and i looked at it and i'm like well um first i'm really happy with the base malt we have i like this flavor so i'm not going to change based off of that but you know, one of the things to look at is, uh, you know, your, the potential extract that you can get out of it. And it was so much lower that it ate up any cost savings that would happen. And it would limit the amount of uh, how high a gravity of beer I could brew. Because if you max out your mash ton and you're getting a lower uh, uh, extract, then, you know, your your potential uh, is, is dropped. So, yeah. I thought that that was yeah. something to be the, the one other point he asked was the, the, the fine grind as is versus the fine grind dry basis. You know, how much moisture is in that malt? Mm-hmm. And on a homebrew scale, not really a big deal. I mean, even, but even if it's, you know, beyond the usual 4% moisture, um, on a homebrew scale, it's not a big deal. But a commercial scale, when you're using, you know, thousands of pounds of malt, um, that equates to 20 pounds of water, you know, to say, for example, more that you're, you're putting into your mash ton and mm-hmm. you know, that's money. Yep. Makes a big difference. Bill asks, uh, I would love to hear Jamel and John talk about mash thickness and why you would want to use a thinner or thicker mash. Let's be start off with the enzymes. Um, there's, talk about thicker mash is uh, more gentler on the enzymes. You, you get longer enzyme uh, half-life or, you know, they don't denature as, as quickly under a thick mash than they do it in a thin mash. But that's a very small factor compared to temperature overall uh, and pH. Mash thickness is way down the list as far as things that 
you know, really enhance the amount of extract you're going to get. Um, so I don't think mash thickness is a big player when it comes to uh, efficiency. That being said, a thicker mash will yield a higher gravity wort than a thin mash. And that's just, that's simply, you know, the amount of water per grain, your water to grist ratio. That's, that's what drives that. So um, if you are brewing, you know, low gravity beers, um, by that, I mean like a 1040 to 1060, um, then a, a water to grist ratio of four to one, four liters per kilogram or two quarts per pound is very uh, reasonable. You'll get a good uh, work strength out of it. You know, you don't have to boil an excessively long period of time to get to your target gravity. Uh, the mash moves very easily, which can be important for commercial uh, installations where you're having to pump the mash to the water ton. Mm -hmm. um, a thick mash can help, on the other hand, can help you uh, better hit a high gravity beer target and save you, you know, time that way. Uh, what would what would you say, Jamil? Yeah, uh, you know, I'd say just in general, it's not as important as, uh, you know, we used to think. I mean, it makes small differences in attenuation, fermentability of the wort. Um, it changes, you know, uh, the um, ability of the mash to convert. Um, you know, there's you know, too thin and too thick will impact your conversion. Yeah, uh, those ability. are way out there. Right. Exactly. Um, and like you said, it's more important in almost like a mash handling uh, aspect where, you know, if you're pumping it or stirring it or, you know, you have volume restrictions on your vessels, um, you know, that's, that's probably the more important and, you know, if you're trying to hit a certain, you know, high gravity runoff initially, I mean, that's, you know, but that, again, that can be, you know, countered with other techniques as well. So that's not really as important as, um, you know, I chalk it up more to convenience and, uh, you know, I would just keep the same mash uh, ratio of water to, uh, to grist. Uh, at all times, unless you have some reason to changing it. And that way, as you're brewing, you're repeating the same uh, thing. You're, you're keeping one thing standard. You're not changing, you know, every time you brew, you're, if you're changing your, your water to grist ratio, you know, you start messing with your ability to master all the process. And, um, you know, I like to simplify things. And, you know, just keep them steady. And then once you've mastered everything else, if you want to come back and start messing with the, uh, the amount of water in your, in your mash, um, then you can start to see what difference it truly, truly has. So, yeah, um, I, I don't think it's, it's huge. Um, but those are the, the reasons why uh, maybe you would, would change your, your mash thickness. But uh, like John says, you know, pretty much, uh, yeah, you know, getting enough liquid in, you know, to cover like a probe, if you're making a small beer <laughs> and, you know, you don't have a whole lot, um, you can, it can be really low and you could be, you know, uh, below whatever probe you might have. Uh, you know, that can be an issue. So you'd add more water, you know, thin it out that way. And that's also why I believe if you're making a small beer, you should be making like double batch, 10 gallons instead of five. If you're making a big beer, you should be making, you know, uh, well, or no, it's, it's actually the opposite. I always believed um, that's why people will do, you know, 10 gallons of small beer and five of a big beer. But really you want, you want the opposite because a small beer, it really isn't very durable and you want to only make five gallons of that. Um, and uh, so it can be consumed quickly and then brewed again. And a big beer, something like a Doppelbach or something, you know, uh, barley wine, something like that. You want to make 10 gallons because, uh, you know, you it's something that ages over time and mm -hmm. uh, that you can enjoy over time. So, and you want to see how it changes over time. Uh, so that's why it's, it's kind of the opposite of what the, the setup is. You want um, a large volume of, 
big beer and you want a small volume of small beer. So you you need two different uh, brew vessels, I think. That's that's the way it goes. All right. Uh, Another excellent uh, pair of shows, my friend. Uh, Thank you. What can I say? Couldn't have done it without you. And uh, couldn't have done it without our fine sponsors, Blickman Engineering, BlickmanEngineering.com, and Brew Chatter, uh, Chatter Check those fine folks out. Uh, let them know that uh, you love the show and uh, for them to keep on writing the checks. Uh, I've never seen one of those checks, but I imagine Justin gets them. And does yeah, them. yeah. I'm sure he's been saving saving it up for us for, for you know, our, maybe. That's right. A big 401k. Surprise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's probably been investing it for us. And, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30 years from now, he'll come out with this massive you know amount of money and i'm just like here you go yeah it'll be like yeah see all this uh it wasn't it wasn't for nothing huh <laughs> can't wait uh, till then everybody bruce strong bruce strong everyone <laughs>